when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by Tom McCarthy. I met your respected father on a recent occasion, Mr Bloom diplomatically returned. Today, in fact, or to be strictly accurate, on yesterday. Where does he live at present? I gathered in the course of conversation that he had moved. I believe he is in Dublin somewhere, Stephen answered unconcernedly. Why? A gifted man, Mr Bloom said, of Mr Dedalus Senior, in more respects than one, and a born raconteur, if ever there was one. He takes great pride, quite legitimate, out of you. You could go back, perhaps, he hazarded, still thinking of the very unpleasant scene at Westland Road Terminus, when it was perfectly evident that the other two, Mulligan, that is, and that English tourist friend of his, who eventually euchred their third companion, were patently trying, as if the whole Bally station belonged to them, to give Stephen the slip in the confusion which they did. There was no response forthcoming to the suggestion, however, such as it was, Stephen's mind's eye being too busily engaged in repicturing his family hearth the last time he saw it, with his sister Dilly sitting by the ingle, her hair hanging down, waiting for some weak Trinidad shell cocoa that was in the soot-coated kettle to be done, so that she and he could drink it with the oatmeal water for milk. After the Friday herrings they had eaten at two a penny with an egg apiece for Maggie, Booty and Katie, the cat, meanwhile, under the mangle, devouring a mess of eggshells and charred fish heads and bones on a square of brown paper, in accordance with the third precept of the church to fast and abstain on the days commanded, it being quarter tense or if not ember days or something like that. No, Mr Bloom repeated again. I wouldn't personally repose much trust in that boon companion of yours who contributes the humorous element, Dr Mulligan, as a guide, philosopher and friend, if I were in your shoes. He knows which side his bread is buttered on, though in all probability he never realised what it is to be without regular meals. Of course, you didn't notice as much as I did, but it wouldn't occasion me the least surprise to learn that a pinch of tobacco or some narcotic was put in your drink for some ulterior object. He understood, however, from all he heard, that Dr Mulligan was a versatile all-round man, by no means confined to medicine only, who was rapidly 
coming to the fore in his line, and, if the report was verified, bade fair to enjoy a flourishing practice in the not-too-distant future as a Tony medical practitioner drawing a handsome fee for his services, in addition to which professional status, his rescue of that man from certain drowning by artificial respiration and what they call first aid at Skerries or Malahide, was it, was, he was bound to admit, an exceedingly plucky deed, which he could not too highly praise, so that, frankly, he was utterly at a loss to fathom what earthly reason could be at the back of it, except he put it down to sheer cussedness or jealousy, pure and simple. Except it simply amounts to one thing, and he is what they call picking your brains, he ventured to throw out. The guarded glance of half-solicitude, half-curiosity, augmented by friendliness, which he gave at Stephen's at present morose expression of features, did not throw a flood of light, none at all in fact, on the problem as to whether he had let himself be badly bamboozled to judge by two or three low-spirited remarks he let drop, or the other way about saw through the affair, and for some reason or other best known to himself, allowed matters to more or less. Grinding poverty did have that effect, and he more than conjectured that highly educational abilities though he possessed, he experienced no little difficulty in making both ends meet. Adjacent to the men's public urinal, they perceived an ice cream car, round which a group of presumably Italians, in heated altercation, were getting rid of voluble expressions in their vivacious language in a particularly animated way, there being some little differences between the parties. Puttana Madonna, Cessidia i quattrini, Horagioni, culo rotto. Intendiamoci, mezzo sovrano più. Dice lui però, mezzo. Farabutto, mortaci sui. Ma ascolta, cinque la testa più. Mr. Bloom and Stephen entered the cabman's shelter, an unpretentious wooden structure where, prior to then, he had rarely, if ever, been before, the former having previously whispered to the latter, a few hints anent the keeper of it, said to be the once famous Skin the Goat, Fitzharris, the Invincible, though he could not vouch for the actual facts, which, quite possibly, there was not one vestige of truth in. A few moments later saw our two noctambules safely seated in a discreet corner, only to be greeted by stares from the decidedly miscellaneous collection of waifs and strays and other nondescript specimens of the genus Homo, already there engaged in eating and drinking, diversified by conversation, for whom they seemingly formed an object of marked curiosity. Now touching a cup of coffee, Mr. Bloom ventured to plausibly suggest to break the ice, 
It occurs to me you ought to sample something in the shape of solid food, say, a roll of some description. Accordingly, his first act was with characteristic sang-froid to order these commodities quietly. The hoi polloi of jarvies or stevedores or whatever they were, after a cursory examination, turned their eyes, apparently dissatisfied, away, though one red-bearded, bibulous individual, portion of whose hair was greyish, a sailor probably, still stared for some appreciable time before transferring his rapt attention to the floor. Mr. Bloom, availing himself of the right of free speech, he having just a bowing acquaintance with the language in dispute, though, to be sure, rather in a quandary over volio, remarked to his protégé in an audible tone of voice apropos of the battle royale in the street which was still raging fast and furious, a beautiful language. I mean, for singing purposes. Why do you not write your poetry in that language? Bella poetria. It is so melodious and full. Bella donna. Folio. Stephen, who was trying his dead best to yawn, if he could, suffering from lassitude generally, replied, to fill the ear of a cow elephant, they were haggling over money. Is that so? Mr. Bloom asked. Of course, he subjoined pensively at the inward reflection of there being more languages to start with than were absolutely necessary. It may be only the southern glamour that surrounds it. The keeper of the shelter in the middle of this tete-a-tete put a boiling swimming cup of a choice concoction labelled coffee, on the table, and a rather antediluvian specimen of a bun, or so it seemed. After which he beat a retreat to his counter, Mr Bloom determining to have a good square look at him later on, so as not to appear to. For which reason he encouraged Stephen to proceed with his eyes, while he did the honours by surreptitiously pushing the cup of what was temporarily supposed to be called coffee gradually nearer him. Sounds are impostures, Stephen said after a pause of some little time. Like names, Cicero, Podmore, Napoleon, Mr Goodbody, Jesus, Mr Doyle, Shakespeare's were as common as Murphy's. What's in a name? Yes, to be sure, Mr. Bloom unaffectedly concurred. Of course. Our name was changed too, he added, pushing the so-called roll across. The red-bearded sailor, who had his weather eye on the newcomers, boarded Stephen, whom he had singled out for attention, in particular, squarely, by asking, and what might your name be? Just in the nick of time, Mr. Bloom touched his companion's boot, but Stephen, apparently disregarding the warm pressure from an unexpected quarter, answered, Daedalus.
The sailor stared at him heavily from a pair of drowsy, baggy eyes, rather bunged up from excessive use of boosts, preferably good old Hollands and water. You know Simon Dedalus? he asked at length. I've heard of him, Stephen said. Mr Bloom was all at sea for a moment, seeing the others evidently eavesdropping too. He's Irish, the seaman bold affirmed, staring still in much the same way and nodding. All Irish. All too Irish, Stephen rejoined. As for Mr Bloom, he could neither make head or tail of the whole business, and he was just asking himself what possible connection, when the sailor of his own accord turned to the other occupants of the shelter with the remark, I seen him shoot two eggs off two bottles at fifty yards over his shoulder, the left hand dead shot. Though he was slightly hampered by an occasional stammer, and his gestures being also clumsy as it was, still he did his best to explain. Bottles out there, say. Fifty yards measured. Eggs on the bottles. Cocks his gun over his shoulder. Aims. He turned his body half round, shut up his right eye completely. Then he screwed his features up some ways sideways and glared out into the night with an unprepossessing cast of countenance. Pom, he then shouted once. The entire audience waited, anticipating an additional detonation, there being still a further egg. Pom, he shouted twice. Egg two evidently demolished, he nodded and winked, adding bloodthirstily, Buffalo Bill shoots to kill, never missed, nor he never will. A silence ensued, till Mr Bloom, for agreeableness's sake, just felt like asking him whether it was for a markmanship competition, like the Bisley. Beg pardon, the sailor said. Long ago, Mr. Bloom pursued without flinching a hair's breath. Why, the sailor replied, relaxing to a certain extent under the magic influence of diamond cut diamond. It might be a matter of ten years. He toured the wide world with Hengler's Royal Circus. I seen him do that in Stockholm. Curious coincidence, Mr. Bloom confided to Stephen unobtrusively. Murphy's my name, the sailor continued. D.B. Murphy of Carrigalo. Know where that is? Queenstown Harbour, Stephen replied. That's right, the sailor said. Fort Camden and Fort Carlisle. That's where I hails from. I belongs there. That's where I hails from. My little woman's down there. She's waiting for me, I know. For England, home and beauty. She's my own true wife I haven't seen for seven years now, sailing about. Mr Bloom 
could easily picture his advent on this scene. The homecoming to the mariner's roadside, shielding after having diddled Davy Jones, a rainy night with a blind moon. Across the world for a wife. Quite a number of stories there were on that particular Alice Ben Bolt topic, Enoch Arden and Rip Van Winkle, and does anybody hereabouts remember Cal Colleary, and favourite and most trying declamation piece by the way of poor John Casey, and a bit of perfect poetry in its own small way. Never about the runaway wife coming back, however much devoted to the absentee. The face at the window, judge of his astonishment when he finally did breast the tape and the awful truth dawned upon him anent his better half, wrecked in his affections. You little expected me, but I've come to stay and make a fresh start. There she sits, a grass widow, at the self-same fireside, believes me dead, rocked in the cradle of the deep. And there sits Uncle Chubb or Tomkin, as the case might be, the publican of the crown and anchor, in shirt sleeves, eating rump steak and onions. No chair for father. Brew the wind. Her brand new arrival is on her knee. Post-mortem child, with a high row and a randy row, and my galloping, tearing, tandy, oh, bow to the inevitable, grin and bear it. I remain with much love your broken-hearted husband, D.B. Murphy. The sailor, who scarcely seemed to be a Dublin resident, turned to one of the Jarvies with the request, You don't happen to have such a thing as a spare chore about you? The Javi addressed, as it happened, had not, but the keeper took a dye of plug from his good jacket hanging on a nail, and the desired object was passed from hand to hand. Thank you, the sailor said. He deposited the quid in his gob, and chewing with some slow stammers, proceeded, We come up this morning, eleven o'clock, the three-master Rosavine from Bridgewater with bricks. I shipped to get over. Paid off this afternoon. There's my discharge. See? D.B. Murphy, A.B.S. In confirmation of which statement he extricated from an inside pocket and handed to his neighbour a not very clean-looking folded document. You must have seen a fair share of the world, the keeper remarked leaning on the counter. Why, the sailor answered upon reflection upon it, I've circumnavigated a bit since I first joined on. I was in the Red Sea. I was in China and North America and South America. We was chased by pirates one voyage. I seen icebergs, plenty, growlers. I was in Stockholm and the Black Sea, the Dardanelles, under Captain Dalton, the best bloody man that ever scuttled a ship. I seen Russia, Gospody Pomilu, that's how the Russian prays. 
You've seen queer sights, don't be talking, put in a Javi. Why, the sailor said, shifting his partially chewed plug. I seen queer things too, ups and downs. I seen a crocodile bite the fluke of an anchor, same as I chew that quid. He took out of his mouth the pulpy quid and, lodging it between his teeth, bit ferociously. Calm, like that. And I seen man-eaters in Peru that eats corpses and the livers of horses. Look here. Here they are. A friend of mine sent me. He fumbled out a picture postcard from his inside pocket, which seemed to be, in its way, a species of repository, and pushed it along the table. The printed matter on it stated, Chosa de Indios, Beni, Bolivia. All focused their attention at the scene exhibited, a group of savage women in striped loincloths, squatted, blinking, suckling, frowning, sleeping amid a swarm of infants, there must have been quite a score of them, outside some primitive shanties of Ossia. Choose cocoa all day, the communicative tarpaulin added. Stomachs like bread graters. Cuts off their ditties when they can't bear no more children. See them sitting there, stark ballock naked, eating a dead horse's liver raw. His postcard proved a centre of attraction for Messrs the Greenhorns for several minutes, if not more. Know how to keep them off? he inquired generally. Nobody volunteering a statement, he winked, saying, Glass. That boggles them. Glass. Mr Bloom, without evincing surprise, unostentatiously turned over the card to peruse the partially obliterated address and postmark. It ran as follows. Tarjeta Postal, Senor A. Buda, Galeria Becce, Santiago, Chile. There was no message, evidently, as he took particular notice. Though not an implicit believer in the lurid story narrated, or the egg-sniping transaction for that matter, despite William Tell and the Lazario Don Cesar de Bazan incident depicted in Maritana, on which occasion the former's ball passed through the latter's hat, having detected a discrepancy between his name, assuming he was the person he represented himself to be, and not sailing under false colours, after having boxed the compass on the Strix QT somewhere, and the fictitious addressee of the missive, which made him nourish some suspicions of our friend's bona fides. Nevertheless, it reminded him in a way of a long-cherished plan he meant to one day realise, some Wednesday or Saturday, of travelling to London via Long Sea, not to say that he had ever travelled extensively to any great extent, but he was, at heart, a born adventurer, though by a trick of fate he had consistently remained a landlubber 
except you call going to Holyhead, which was his longest. Martin Cunningham frequently said he would work a pass through Egan, but some juiced hitch or other eternally cropped up with the net result that the scheme fell through. But even suppose it did come down to planking down the needful and breaking Boyd's heart, it was not so dear, purse permitting, a few guineas at the outside, considering the fare to Mullingar, where he figured on going was five and six, there and back. The trip would benefit health, on account of the bracing ozone, and be in every way thoroughly pleasurable, except for a chap whose liver was out of order, seeing the different places along the route, Plymouth, Falmouth, Southampton, and so on, culminating in an instructive tour of the sites of the great metropolis, the spectacle of our modern Babylon, where doubtless he would see the greatest improvement, tower, abbey, wealth of Park Lane to renew acquaintance with. Another thing just struck him as a by no means bad notion was he might have a gaze around on the spot, to see about trying to make arrangements about a concert tour of summer music embracing the most prominent pleasure resorts, Margate with mixed bathing and first-rate hydros and spas, Eastbourne, Scarborough, Margate, and so on, beautiful Bournemouth, the Channel Islands, and similar bijou spots, which might prove highly remunerative. Not, of course, with a hole-and-corner scratch company or local ladies on the job witness Mrs. C.P. McCoy type lend me your valise and I'll post you the ticket. No, something top-notch, an all-star Irish cast, the Tweedy Flower Grand Opera Company with his own legal consort as leading lady as a sort of counterblast to the Elster Grimes and Moody Manners perfectly simple matter, and he was quite sanguine of success, providing puffs in the local papers could be managed by some fellow with a bit of bounce who could pull the indispensable wires and thus combine business with pleasure. But who? That was the rub. Also, without being actually positive, it struck him a great field was to be opened up in the line of opening up new routes to keep pace with the times apropos of the Fishguard Rosslair route, which, it was mooted, was once more on the tapis in the circumlocution departments with the usual quantity of red tape and dilly-dallying of a feet fogeydom and dunderheads generally. A great opportunity there certainly was for push and enterprise to meet the travelling needs of the public at large, the average man, i.e. Brown, Robinson and co. It was a subject of regret, and absurd as well on the face of it, and no small blame to our vaunted society, that the man in the street, when the system really needed toning up, for the matter of a couple of paltry pounds, was debarred from seeing more of the world they lived in, instead of being always and ever cooped up since my old stick in the mud took me for a wife. 
After all, hang it, they had their eleven and more humdrum months of it, and merited a radical change of venue after the grind of city life and the summertime for choice when Dame Nature is at her spectacular best, constituting nothing short of a new lease of life. There were equally excellent opportunities for vacationists in the home island, delightful sylvan spots for rejuvenation, offering a plethora of attractions as well as a bracing tonic for the system in and around Dublin and its picturesque environs, even Pulapuka, to which there was a steam tram, but also farther away from the madding crowd in Wicklow, rightly termed the Garden of Ireland, an ideal neighbourhood for elderly wheelmen, so long as it didn't come down, and in the wilds of Donegal, where, if report spoke true, the coup d'oeil was exceedingly grand, though the last-named locality was not easily get-attable, so that the influx of visitors was not, as yet, all that it might be, considering the signal benefits to be derived from it, while health, with its historic associations and otherwise, Silken Thomas, Grace O'Malley, George IV, Rhododendrons, several hundred feet above sea level, was a favourite haunt with all sorts and conditions of men, especially in the spring when young men's fancy, though it had its own toll of deaths by falling off the cliffs by design or accidentally, usually, by the way, on their left leg, it being only about three quarters of an hour's run from the pillar. Because, of course, up-to-date tourist travelling was as yet merely in its infancy, so to speak, and the accommodation left much to be desired. Interesting to fathom, it seemed to him, from a motive of curiosity, pure and simple, was whether it was the traffic that created the route, or vice versa, or the two sides, in fact. He turned back the other side of the card, picture, and passed it along to Stephen. I seen a Chinese one time, related the doughty narrator, that had little pills like putty, and he put them in the water, and they opened, and every pill was something different. One was a ship, another was a house, another was a flower. Cooks rats in your soup, he appetisingly added, does. <laughs>